In October of 2020, my email was hacked, and luckily I didn't lose any money, but I did lose my patience. And Microsoft, hey, thanks for making me feel like a criminal while it took about 48 hours to get my email restored. So that's why I'm thrilled that former special agent of the FBI, Scott Augenbaum, who is an expert and author on the topic of cybersecurity, is joining us. That's coming up next on... CFO Bookshelf. Bruce Reed, the CFO for Practice Link. Uh, are you into fishing? Am I into fishing? Oh, uh, I am not. I am not into fishing. That's good because we don't want you to be committing crime. We don't want you to be sending these email messages. <laughs> Whether you click on this link and I will help you recover your $5 million. And yeah, that kind of phishing that starts with a P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. You've never clicked on one of those links, have you ever? I mean, ever, ever? Oh man, I can't. You're pausing. I can't. I think anybody who thinks that they've not, not gotten a, not not done that is probably a more unaware than they are careful. Uh, I've been hacked. I was hacked in early October, and I thought I'm pretty sad. You know, I I've never I've got great security set up on my PC. I never I rarely answer the phone uh, from a ca- from a caller that I don't recognize a number nope. I don't recognize. Nope. But I was in LinkedIn. Uh, you, uh, you're supposed to say on LinkedIn. I use the wrong preposition. There is someone I know from Fayette, Missouri, and he he has a business that's it's a global business. And we actually used to have lunch uh, meetings with him and three others. We really would we talk about books, and it was a very enjoyable uh, conversation. We get together. His name is Bruce. And he, yeah. Oh, he's he yes he is he's he's another Bruce. I'm not, make, not making this up. So. I got a message from him through InMail, InMail of LinkedIn. And obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, I thought that doesn't look, that something doesn't look right there. So I deleted it, but then I got it again. And it says something about checking out this project. And I don't know, I, hmm. I clicked on it. And within the next three days, stuff started happening and I got hacked. And I had a few people say, did you aim to send this email message? And before I knew it, before I knew it on a Thursday night, on a Thursday night, I could receive messages, but messages did not go out. Well, that's because Microsoft had shut my account down. So it took me about 48 hours to get my email reinstated from Microsoft itself because I'm using Office 365. And I it was just so infuriating because I felt like I was, tre- I was treated as the criminal. I mean, I went through all of my... I, I, clearly outlined here's what happened and I did a very good job at it and I explained heck I even explained here's some blog posts that I've written about this but yeah I felt like I was treated like a criminal and if this ever happens again that they will remove my email privileges so this is a big deal and luckily I didn't have any theft involved is more of a frustration and but it was 48 hours of I'll just say mental hell. <laughs> and we're not, we're not going to bleep that out by the way. Oh, good. Good. That's uh, you need to have the full impact there. So, so, and I know you all have never, ever have had an issue with, with phishing uh, or some type of cyber crime or cybersecurity issues at your company. Never have you. Uh, I mean, just like any other company where, you know, you, any any company who's out there in the public is going to be has a chance to be subject to issues. I'm sure your CEO is is nodding that that was a good answer, Bruce. <laughs> that was a very <laughs> good answer. Well, we have on our show today. His name is Scott Augenbaum. Scott Augenbaum, and he's written a book on cybersecurity. We'll talk about it. It will be in the show notes. Uh, Scott has a 20 plus year history in fighting cybercrime. 
He's now retired. Uh, he has a he speaks this message around uh, the U.S. Uh, he well, he's probably done over one thousand speeches uh, just on cybercrime, cybersecurity, and his message is all about prevention. He truly believes almost all of cyber uh, criminal activity could be prevented, and he won't say all of it, but most of it. And that's really our topic. Uh, during this interview. All right. This is an important topic, so let's get to it. So, Scott, I'm going to guess that when people meet you for the first time and you tell them, well, I work for the FBI or I used to work for the FBI, you're one of the few people that say, oh, what was that like? Do you get that a lot, Scott? Oh, yeah. And I can't tell you how often I would startle people in my career, but I would say you want to know probably was the worst part about it. When I would have to show up at a company unannounced and tell them that I found their information on the dark web. And I always like to say, I'm a really fun guy to come across. I tell myself that. Like, I'm a fun guy to meet out and we can go out for a drink. But when I show up at your organization and I drop off your stuff and I tell you that we found, and let's think about it, if you're a CPA, that I found all of your client records on the dark web. It never gets off on the right foot. Hi, I'm Scott with the FBI. Nice to meet you. You have a really big problem. Here's your stuff. Oh, my goodness. And then you've got their attention. Yeah, I got their attention, but not in kind of a good way. And, you know, during my 30 years with the FBI, I've seen a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff. And one of the questions I get all the time is, Scott, do you miss the FBI? And I usually, unfortunately, say no very quickly. And I had a great career. I had the best time. I mean, I would not trade what I did for anything. Even with all the stuff in the news and the political stuff, I would be proud if my kids would be FBI agents. And at 14 and 17, I tell them about the background investigation and they better keep their nose clean. But why do I say I don't miss the FBI? Because today I live a passion project life, which is doing what I love to do. And hopefully I'm going to be able to share with your audience a number of things to prevent FBI agents from showing up at their organization, telling them that they have a problem. Well, so, so Scott, let's go backwards. It's 20, 25 years ago. How did you get started? Or let me rephrase the question. You got into cybercrime. Was it by accident, somewhat purposeful? Walk us through that, 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 that journey. Well, I'm going to have to go back a little bit further in time. Okay. Because if you would have told me almost 32 years ago that I'd be retired from the FBI, wrote a book on cybercrime and living in Nashville, Tennessee, I would have said, not my life. So let me go back, you know, raised in New York City, single parent, didn't do very well in high school, got into community college, didn't do very well in community college. And my mother was always trying to look for a way to keep me out of jail as a kid. And she filled out an application for me to become a file clerk with the FBI in March of 1988, making $12,038 a year. And that's when in September of that year, I started with the FBI, 20 years old, right out of community college. And I'm surrounded by positive role models, uh, I have hundreds of father figures who explain to me that you can't go through life between below average and mediocre. I get my act together, finish up my bachelor's degree in liberal arts, start messing around in technology about 92 because I discover Microsoft Excel. I discover America Online. I become an agent in 1994. I go to Quantico, Virginia. And from New York City, I got transferred to Syracuse, New York. And if you'd asked me to find the role of an FBI agent in 1995, I would say it was so easy. There were bad people who did bad things to good people. And I worked with state and local cops and put bad guys in jail. And my area of specialization was the white collar cases. And I know we talked about that earlier tracking down the money. Then I got a chance to play cops and robbers every day of my life, bank robberies, fugitives, drug cases. I'm running and gunning. But why did I become an FBI agent? I'll tell you why I didn't. I didn't join the FBI to work cybercrime. You bought a gateway computer. Yes. Well, I did buy that gateway computer because one day, and this is 
I get a call from a small internet service provider. It's 1996, who tells me about all the stolen property being sold on these things called bulletin boards. And I'm like, and that was the great part about the FBI. This is what I always told people. Crime doesn't happen in the office. You've got to get out of the office. So I took a ride up to Fulton, New York, met with this gentleman, and he showed me these computers and color monitors and screens and introduced me to this thing called the World Wide Web. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. So I went out and I bought a home computer at Gateway, and I bought that blazing fast 133 megahertz processor and a 40 megabyte hard drive and a flat screen that weighed 500 pounds at least. And since I was the only guy in the office with a computer, I by default became the internet guy in the office in about 96 or so with no background. I was a Windows 95 guy. How do we troubleshoot problems? Yeah. Hit you hit the power button and you prayed. That's all I knew. But that was it. And I became that guy in the office. And Mark, I couldn't get rid of being that guy. And it followed me my whole career. And then you retire and you write the book, The Secret to Cybersecurity. Why did you write? Now I know why you wrote the book, but I want to hear from your your own words. Why'd you write it? Well, so here it is, 96 or so, I get involved in cybercrime. I'm the only agent in the office working cybercrime. It's not the cool and fun, sexy Now, was, was that Syracuse or New York? Uh, no, Syracuse, Sy- New York. Okay. And so I become that guy, and I'm chasing thrill seekers and amateurs, and my friends are giving me a hard time because that's my specialization. And then I get involved with cybercrime sometime after September 11th, because September 11th changes the priorities for the FBI quite dramatically. Sure. And terrorism is number one. Counterintelligence is number two. And cybercrime is number three. So I take up that area of specialization. And all my friends make fun of me because they tell me that the cybercrime problem by 2006 is going to go away because the FBI will arrest everyone. Yeah, right. Hey, how's that working out for us? It's not. So I get to Nashville in 2007 as the first supervisor of the FBI cyber squad, where I'm managing a squad of FBI agents. And I joined the FBI to be a hero. I mean, that became my identity. I put bad guys in jail. And I thought I was going to be able to do that with cyber cases. But I quickly learned that I couldn't pull that off. And so I spent my career in working cybercrime. And during that time, I had to touch almost a thousand victims. And I had a chance to look at them face to face. And a lot of them were small businesses and nonprofit organizations, religious institutions. And I had plenty of CPAs because we're going to talk about that. CFOs were what I like to call whaling. And we're going to talk about that because those were always my targets. But I kind of wrote that book with one goal. And that goal was to share my experiences as an FBI agent to help keep people safe. And that's my calling, Mark. That's why I say I have a passion project life. And by the way, for the agent or agents who said this would go away by 06, 07, whenever in 2017, this is a quote from your book. It's costing businesses $6 trillion, $6 trillion annually. That was two years ago. And I think that's almost double from two years earlier. This is not going away, is it, Scott? No, and that's the problem. But that doesn't bother me as much. I mean, because here's what I tell people. The cybercrime problem is going up. Okay. But here's another thing. The amount of money that we are spending to keep ourselves safe on hardware and software and in insurance and all and consulting services is going up. And it's almost going up at the same rate. So Mark, you're a financial guy. I'm going to give you a financial problem here. Okay. What does it mean if the problem is getting worse, but we spend more money to keep ourselves safe and the problem keeps getting worse? What does that mean to you? Something's not working. And I would also, I would start asking why a lot. And I'd be wondering, are we doing enough on the front end 
versus the back end. Am I getting warm? Absolutely. But here's the thing. We don't know. People don't know where to start. They don't know where to start. It's so daunting to people because there's so much fog out there. Because if you walk into any information security conference, you're going to get hit up by every single vendor who's going to tell you, you need to start here, you need to start here, you need to start there. And one of the things that I discovered, and this has caused some grief for a couple of vendors, because I make one key statement. Mark, what would I say to you if I told you that cybercrime victimization a lot of it could be prevented if the victims were just empowered with some key pieces of information. Well, I have an advantage. I read the book. Now, before I read the book, I would not have believed you. Well, I take that back. I would have said, prove it. But now that I've read the book, that's a key theme in this book. You, there's four words. This could be avoided or could have been avoided. That is a key theme. And I now, uh, I believe you. Hey, before we get into the book, there's one other thing I want to say about the intended audience. So when I got the book, again, the name of the book is The Secret to Cybersecurity. This will be in the show notes. Get it, by the way. I'm getting a copy for every family member and my extended family. That's how important this book is. But when I got it, I thought, is this going to be for me? Is it going to be for big businesses? Is it going to be for small businesses? Oh, you know what? It's for everybody. It's for the elderly. It's for I mean, this is for parents. So this book is universal. Am I, am I right? Scott? You are right. And I had a lot of challenges when I put this together because everyone said, look, you got to drill down. You got to go for one specific target audience. You got to, you know, it's in the niches. And I just couldn't really deal with that. This worked. You nailed it. I just figured I needed to write a book that is for everyone except one group of people. If you're an information security specialist and you're looking for a book to help secure your firewall, don't read my book, okay? If you're looking for a book that's a political thriller to tell all about the administration, not my book. But if you're looking for a book that's going to teach you at the same time to keep your kids safe, your employees safe, your parents safe, and how to stay safe when buying a house. That's what I'm doing. Because there's so much complexity in the world of cybercrime. And Mark, I understand because I talk to a lot of people. This is a very complicated topic, but I try to make it so simple that, that I just want to empower the reader and scream and say, you don't have to be the next victim. Let's start unpacking this book. And by the way, there is so much good information. Let's start with the four truths. That was in chapter two. I lo- that was one of my favorite chapters. In fact, every chapter is outstanding. But what are the four truths? And 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 do you, let, let me just say, number one is no one expects to be a victim. And by the way, that's me. That's me. Uh, but I'm going to let you give, I'm going to give you number four, but number two is you probably won't get your money back. So we're talking about the first, the person who lost $500,000, the person who lost a million dollars, probably not going to get it back. Number three, the bad guys, probably they're not going to get arrested. And then number four, what's number four, Scott? A majority of my victimizations didn't have to, you occur. They could have been prevented. Exactly. Let me, go, let me go back to point one Okay. on the first truth, because I've just kind of experienced something. I've just kind of realized something. You know, to me, it's always a learning experience. And one of the things that I picked up out of that is, okay, nobody ever expects to be a victim. But I've come up and during my career, I had the opportunity to provide, to deal with a thousand victims. But at the same time, I warned almost a thousand organizations and I came up with a list of my top 30 reasons why people don't take cybersecurity seriously. And it's kind of really interesting because, you know, if you look at it from a sales point of view, this is why people don't buy a product. But I'm not talking about why people don't buy a product. I'm talking about why people don't take it seriously. And it's because just to rattle some off, 
they think it's an IT problem. Well, my technology guy is going to prevent it. I'm too small of a company. Uh, I'm a small CPA firm. I've heard it that I'm publicly, I'm on the NASDAQ. Bad guys are only targeting companies on the New York Stock Exchange. I spoke to companies on the New York Stock Exchange. They go like this. We only have a net asset value of $5.8 billion. That's hilarious. I spoke to a private company that was a $9 billion private company. And they said, well, we're a private company. Mark, the list goes on and on. And this is one of the things that I'm fascinated about that I want to explore in another era of time. But why do people just not take it seriously? Because you believe that, hey, I got an iPhone. I'm going to be safe. And what I'm going to explain to people is all these quick takeaways that if you understand them, you're going to keep yourself safe. Early in the book, you talk about phishing. Now, some people know what that is, but let's assume no one knows what phishing is. Not not uh, not Opie Taylor with with his dad, uh, Andy Taylor. We're talking phishing with PH. What is phishing in your words? Well, let me go into when you're what what's going to happen. And here's your, here is the perfect scenario going on. We're only a couple of weeks away from Thanksgiving, right? Right. And I think Cyber Monday this year is probably going to be the biggest it's ever been. Correct? Right. Right. Tuesday morning, you get an email from Amazon that says, hey, Mark, we just want to let you know that the product you ordered is out of stock. If you'd like to reorder, please click on the link and give us your information. Let's fast forward. Let, let's go farther into the future. Let's go December 22nd. What happens? How many people are waiting for a package from Amazon? So if you get a, an email from Amazon, Best Buy, Costco, you, United Postal Service, or this and that, or you get something, you get an email from Amazon, and all it has to say is this, we've just charged your credit card $1,100 for the purchase. That's phishing. Phishing is to get your reaction. And after COVID-19, the phishing emails that we're seeing are so good. Because just think about it. I have a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old. What's going to happen if I get an email from the Williamson County School District telling me, hey, special alert, school's closed tomorrow because of COVID-19. Here's a list. I think your kid's on this list. Please review. What am I going to do? Click. You have to stop and think before you click. You have to realize that email is 90% of the attack vector. And you're not going to get an email from Boris Badenoff from cybercriminal.org. You're going to get an email from somebody you know and somebody you trust. And tell us what's happening when you click on that link. What's being added or investing, will be investing on your PC or computer? Well, let's even say... Because here's what a lot of people say. The vendors go, hey, we have this great anti, we have this great malware detection, so you're not going to get malware at all. So let's just think you don't get malware. So now you click on the link. It takes you to a website that looks just like Amazon. And it says, if you want to stop that $1,100 charge, just please log into your account. So what do people do? They enter in username and password, and then the bad guy is able to get access to that account. Now, bad guy steals your Amazon credentials. Now he can access your account. But the bad guys are going to bank on one thing. 60 to 70% of the population is using the same password from multiple platforms. So once they steal your Amazon, then they're going to go into your Apple account, and now they can get access to your iCloud account, see your passwords there, or maybe they're going to log into your bank, or they're going to log into the greatest e-commerce sites. And by the way, you mentioned passwords. I don't want to give away too much, but there is, just in the book, for those of you listening, well, I guess everyone's listening. That's a dumb comment, but... In the book, Scott talks about here is a process or a concept for your passwords, which I think is brilliant. And you know what I'm talking about. 
uh, don't use on the password using different passwords. And again, you've got a string that you suggest and here's how to remember it. And I, again, I think it's brilliant. It's well, very simple. Just come up with passphrases. Come up with passphrases, put special symbols and numbers. In front, and in your passphrase for your email account could be something as simple as, I could never, ever remember my long Gmail password. And just write the first letter, write the phrase down to jog your memory. And then you're going to realize that you are just going to take the first initial off of that. And you don't have to make them so uh, ran- so predictable. So f- find your top five mission critical passwords and change them to phrases like your favorite restaurant, your favorite vacation destination, something that nobody would ever be able to guess do if you, they wanted. Do you also recommend using tools like OnePass? You can, you can, but that goes into the discussion we're going to have a two-factor authentication because if I get access to your cloud-based password manager, if I'm able to steal your password for your password manager, what can I do? You can get access to all other sites that you have a, a, a connection to, correct? Yeah, so am I saying don't use that? Of course not. I'm saying that, and that's when we're going to have that discussion about the two-factor authentication, because we're going to have to identify our mission-critical accounts, and that's kind of almost a self-audit process, and then you're going to have to have separate passwords for them, and then secure them with two-factor authentication. One last thing on phishing, and again, I'm sorry if I'm giving away too much in the book. No, you can give away the entire book, because my whole, honestly, I wrote... This is my passion. This is my calling here. You ask me anything, I'll go read the book because I my goal is to keep people safe. Well, for nine ninety nine, this is a no brainer. Get the it book. It went down to nine ninety nine, Mark. Oh my goodness. Oh well, I'd I have to look. I, I, <laughs> I, to me it was worth every penny of it. You mentioned in the book on the phishing, anytime a phone number is listed, like for you know, call this number. Don't call the number that's listed in the email. So, for example, if your bank, Bank of America in Nashville, Tennessee, don't call that number. Actually, go to the number that you know that may be in your 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 Outlook or you know find it. Call a number that's not on the email. I think that's brilliant. It may seem like common well, sense, but well, but great just advice. think about how did I deter? You know, people. I was on a panel. They said well, you know, you're a cyber subject matter expert. And I go, well, no, I said, I just happened to deal with a thousand victimizations and I've just extracted the information because there's a time when the bad guys will send you that email. We're training people to think before we click. You get an email from the bank and it says, hey, we want to let you know your account is overdraft. Either click on the link or call the number. So most people go, I'm not going to click on the link. I'm going to call the number. You call the number. It's a 1-800 number. And you get the only English speaker in Latvia who has a Boston accent who says to you, yeah, it's, it's okay. Just click on the link. And then when you click on the link, you enter in your password. It's all about the stolen password. I'm going to play the devil's advocate on this next, this next point, two-factor authentication. First of all, before I, before I be the devil's advocate, what is two-factor authentication? I think most people, CFOs are going to know that, accountants, but for the business owner, the small business owner of a $20 million e-commerce company, they may not be aware of two-factor authentication. Well, what is it, Scott? Well, let me tell you what it is. It's the thing that almost 98% of my victims didn't have it. They didn't have it. Exactly. Yes. And two-factor authentication is a second form of authentication because I don't care how good your passwords are, how you can have a tattoo in your forehead that says, I will think before you click. But let me tell you, I'm going to get an email from somebody I know I trust. I'm going to click on a link. Someone's going to steal my password. That's a fact of life, but it's not game over because you're going to have that second form of authentication. And the most common way to do it is would be, and I want everyone here, you need to do this on your personal email account first. So you would go to your Gmail or your Outlook account, and you would go to the security settings options. You would add, 
it would ask you, uh, it would just say two-factor authentication. You, all you do is you hit enable, then it asks you for your cell phone number. And then you enter in your cell phone number, then it logs you off of the computer, you log back in, username, password, then you're going to get a screen that's going to pop up. It's going to say, please provide us with your random six-digit code. Your phone's going to go off. You're going to see that code. You're going to enter that code in. And now anytime you log in from that device, that's a trusted device. Why are we doing this? Because here's what I hear. I see it. You know, I'm married to a CPA. So I have the CPA whisper. I can hear them now. They're going like this. That's such a giant pain. Yes. Why do I need to do that? Because here's why you need to do that. Because if you didn't have it set up, if all of a sudden now the bad guy steals my username and password and he tries to log in from his computer, he's not going to be able to get in because his computer is not a trusted device. And you can have multiple trusted devices. So I'll give you a perfect example. A couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, my wife comes to me and says, honey, I just want to let you know, I just got a random six-digit text message from Uber, but I'm not logged into Uber. So Mark, what did that mean? What caused her to get a text message? Well, someone someone tried, to, yeah, someone was able to. Exactly, well, yeah, exactly. So-, so she comes to me. Now we have two-factor authentication on that. So she goes, honey, what do we do? I said, you got two-factor authentication? She goes, yeah. I said, got nothing to worry about. Yeah, nothing to worry about. And then I said one thing to her. I said, as long as you're not using that password for multiple platforms, you're going to be okay. Safe. And that's when she said, oh, crap, and ran upstairs. Because remember, if they get one password, they'll get them all. How did they get that password? Maybe you clicked on a link. Maybe it was a password you had when you signed up for Blockbuster some 25 years ago, and now they're out of business and it's out there. It does not matter how they got the password. We could talk about that for 15 minutes. I'll bore you to death with the technical way, but just realize by having two-factor authentication, you keep it safe. Now, let's think about this, Mark. What kind of platforms do you think that CPAs use and financial professionals use that if the bad guy stole the username and password would make their life miserable? What kind of passwords? What do you think? Well, they're going to be pa- well. The first, one of the, I may not be answering the right question, but they're going to have passwords to their accounting software that may be up in the cloud. Okay. Uh, uh, bank accounts. Uh, if, uh, if they're doing a uh, financial advisory work, uh, access to all of those accounts like Vanguard, et cetera, et cetera. But their CRM system that has all of their client information about it. So Pat, and again, a lot of that software is now up in the cloud. So if they get access to that, I mean, they're going to be hosed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is where when I'm going out and I'm doing coaching for companies, how do I have to make this sit in? If I can teach you to do this at home, then you're going to understand why you need to do it at work. And I've seen some horrible victimizations at CPA firms because they didn't have two-factor authentication. Because I had one situation where the uh, CEO of a CPA firm got an email from somebody he knows and somebody he trusts. He clicks on the link in the PDF document. There's no malware in it. So the, so the antivirus lets it go. It turns into a HTML file that says you have a Dropbox message. Do CPAs use Dropbox? Yes, many do. Okay. Uh, was it, it? Yes. It was Dropbox or, and then there was another platform, which is escaping me. So he goes over. And, uh, oh, Mark, I'm having a little bit of it. We're going to have to having a little bit of a brain fart here because there was another platform. What's the platform that has the signatures that request to say DocuSign? DocuSign. So the CPA, so the CPA gets an email from the attorney. He knows and trusts the attorney. He gets a PDF, clicks on the PDF. PDF turns into a DocuSign document. We know CPAs use DocuSign documents. It says, in order to open this document, you need to provide your Microsoft 365 credentials. 
Ouch. True or false? Do you need to provide Microsoft 365 credentials to open up a DocuSign document? No, never. Should never okay. have to. Okay. Hey, let me ask you another question. What about QuickBooks? Is a Quick QuickBooks is an accounting software, right? Correct. Can you open up your QuickBooks with your Gmail password? No, because you have a separate password. Well, no, you can authenticate on single sign-on. Oh, good point. Good point. For QuickBooks. So nobody really knows. I didn't know. And and by the way, I did not know that. I'm not surprised, but that... No, but, but, but you know, I didn't know that either, Mark. I didn't know that either. You need to be dinging into it. That should be... I mean, that that is ridiculous. Single, so that's dangerous. So he... So he goes in, he enters in on the DocuSign, his Microsoft 365 password. That doesn't work. It says, if that doesn't work, authenticate with your Gmail password. What percentage of CPAs have a Gmail, personal Gmail account? Now that I'm not for sure. But can we say a lot? I would say for maybe smaller firms, they might use, they might use personal, personal, oh, personal. I would then, yeah, I would say many. Let's okay. just say we're many. Okay, after that, it says, if that doesn't work, please enter in your iCloud credentials. Oh, my god! What gosh. percentage of the population does it? He hits okay every single time. What you don't see is that the bad guy, who was probably a teenager sitting in West Africa, just captured the username and password for three mission-critical accounts. So now the bad guy logs in to the corporate CPA firm through his Microsoft Outlook portal. And now, what do you think he gets besides the email? What could he access? Well, he's not just getting access to the CPA firm. I mean, like the QuickBooks, think of all the companies that are doing payroll. Now he has all access to all the social security numbers. He can have payroll. Oh, yeah, because they were in the OneDrive. And from there, it's game over. Now they take over his account and now they start sending out emails to clients. This is where when the companies do not have two-factor authentication, what ends up happening now is the CEO sends an email to the CFO saying, I need you to pay this bill. Because now he doesn't just send it blindly. He waits for the right moment. And I remember I had a case of a, on a large company, bad guy, the same technique. That's how he got in. He read all the CEO's emails and at the right moment, they're working on a merger and acquisition. The CEO and the CFO are talking every single day. At one point, the CEO sends an email to the CFO, says, Mark, just want to let you know the deal's about to go through. Here it is. 15 minutes later, another email comes from the CEO to the CFO. Hey, Mark, I just want to let you know we just changed the banking and routing number. It's still going to be at XYZ Bank, but here's a different account. Unfortunately, what do people do when they get an email asking them to do something? What do they do? They do their job. Exactly. You do a lot of public speaking. When you get to the part where you're talking about two-factor authentication, I bet you get a lot of people saying, like you said earlier, I don't want to do that. (laughs) That's too much work. Do you get that a lot? Do you get a lot of pushback? Well, I don't really, you have to accept pushback to get pushback because I have consulting clients that I go out for and they say to me, Scott, we don't want to do it. And you know what I tell them? I don't care. I'm not here to move in and be a consultant and spend my life with you. However, I have friends that do intrusion response work and they work for Crawl, which is one of the biggest and best intrusion response companies. And almost 85% of their intrusion response work is an account compromise, which could be prevented. So I say to them, if you don't want to do anything, I don't care. Don't do it. Here's my friend's business card. Mention my name, call 24-7, mention my name, and you'll get 10% off your five, six, or seven-figure retainer. And then they'll kick me back. And I go, I can't say kickback. I'm former FBI. They call it a referral fee. We got to, and I say that in tongue in cheek, you need to do this. I want to hit a couple of other big points in the book, antivirus products. Again, and you may not remember these numbers in the book, but you say that 
antivirus products are maybe 30 to 40% effective. And that's because these creeps out there are writing code. Like, I mean, it's ongoing. So it, yes, it is, but you still need antivirus protection. Well, I agree. But, but I they're just, not writing as much code as it's still going on, but there's such a glut of passwords. If we take the Yahoo breach and we take the Marriott breach, we have 4 billion usernames and passwords that are out there. Marriott and Yahoo told us all to change our, our usernames and passwords. Let me ask you a guess here. What percentage of those 4 billion people have either an iPhone, an iPad, or an iCloud? Just take a guess. Oh, I'll be easily 75%, easily. So let's just say for my example, we're going to say it's 10% because I know it's a lot more. Let's even go lower and say 5% because 5% is crazy low. What is 5% of 4 billion? Well, that's a big number. (laughs) Yeah, 200 million. And I can guarantee you out of those 200 million people, 99% say, hey, I have an IP phone or an iPad, they don't get viruses. But almost 60 to 70% of the population are using the same password for multiple platform. What's 60 to 70% of 200 million? That's a ton of people. And how many of those are CFOs that have access to all these accounts? That's it. It's the lack of sophistication that is required. So you can get the best endpoint solution in the world. You can get all these products that have great names with artificial intelligence. But if you don't do what I tell you to do for free, you're still going to have tremendous risk. Now, who's kidding who? Reading my book and following what I say is a must, but that's only the start. That's the low-hanging fruit. Then you have to partner with a really good consultant or a technology vendor to take you through the last 10%. But if 90% of what I dealt with could have been prevented, well, that's where you need to start. And that makes sense. I want to also hit cyber insurance. And similarly to antivirus antivirus software and malware, yeah, definitely use it. Cyber insurance, yes, if you understand it and can find a credible agent who can sell it and presents it well, get it. However, there's a however. Cyber insurance does not do fill in the blank, Scott. I'll let you fill in the blank. Doesn't solve your problem. Exactly. Because let's go like this. When some when I ask an organization what's your cybersecurity strategy and they tell me they have insurance. And then I f- tell you that's a water municipality or an energy sector company, does that make you feel good? Insurance is just transfer of risk. Exactly. But are we mitigating the problem? No. And this is my issue with the insurance industry today. Is the insurance industry selling us products or are they reducing our level of risk? So this is what I tell everyone today. If you have cyber policy and you do not have two-factor authentication on your email on your payroll account, on your CRM, and on all of your marketing accounts, here's a little secret. Call your insurance company and try to get a 30-year policy because they have no idea how to underwrite it. Mark, I wonder why the insurance industry doesn't call me to do presentations. Good point. Excellent I wonder point. why. I wonder why. But that's why I like to speak the truth. I'm very, very driven by this. I love to fit... And this is my thing when I talk to the insurance company. If you would just implement what I tell companies to do, you'd reduce risk by 90%. So my open message to the insurance industry today is, are you in the business of paying out claims? Because that's what it seems that we're doing if you're not making people take these steps. And now the claims are getting out of control with the ransomware because the ransomware is out of control. And I know we didn't even touch on that. And don't worry, it will be in the show notes. Hey, I want to throw you a question that's not on our interview arc. And and this is going to be hard. I'm going to throw you a hard question. It's going to be fun. Oh. So you've got 10 CFOs. Let's say a mid-sized company. Let's say a $100 million company. And they're e-commerce. Again, 10 CFOs. 
and each CFO has hired you. And one of the things you told them was you need a separate PC, a separate PC where all you do at that PC is you do banking transactions, nothing else. Oh, and by the way, use this network only, only this network that will connect to your bank. Out of those 10 CFOs, how many will say, all right, I'm going to do it? Probably not many anymore. Because? It's it's inconvenient. Kind of like the two-factor authentication. It's inconvenient. And and here's the thing, too, and especially on a business network, if let's say I am sitting at home today and I have my banking and finance on... I bank on a computer that I let my kids use and everything. And I get a piece of malware and the bad guy steals my money. And I find out about it 36 hours later. I don't care. Regulation E is my friend. I am going to be safe. But what do you think happens? Because business accounts aren't protected by regulation E. Right. So if the bad guys put a piece of malware on your network and they are able to do the wire transfer or to do the ACH, or to transfer the money out, then you know, things get a little hairy. And, I, and I'm just going to explain to you another situation why it's so important. And, and, it's, and it's not as easy as it sounds. And that's why now, I really think now all the banks are offering the two-factor authentication. So if you are going to use the same laptop, which... I understand now why some people might have to, because we do everything on our iPhone. I'm going to get a virus, but eventually someone's going to steal my password. But if I have two-factor authentication, I'll be okay. So here's the homework I want everyone, all my CFOs to do right now. Right now, go over and talk to your payroll person. And ask them on their ADP account or their payroll account where you have administrators, ask them if they have two-factor authentication on the payroll account. Because if they don't have two-factor authentication and the bad guy is able to steal the username and password, and why could they do that now easily? Easily. Because after COVID-19, everybody's working from home these days. They steal username and password. They get into the payroll account and they take all the bank account and routing information of all your employees and they switch that with and they switch that with um, mule accounts, which are these. And I talk about that in the book. These are the work from home scams. I've seen companies have their entire payroll account wiped out by the cyber criminals and the banks are not at fault here because they did not hack into the bank system. They hacked into your payroll system. Okay, so everyone goes, Oh my God, I shouldn't use payroll. I'm like, no, just use two factor authentication. Do we have time for a couple more questions, Scott? This yeah, is, sure. this is great stuff. We may have some people either in it or maybe some accountants who say what Scott is doing is very intriguing Maybe they read the book. How could someone get how, how could someone get into this line of work? Now, obviously, you can't just I, I, I'm going to turn in my resume to the FBI. Yeah, good luck. I mean, I don't even know how many applications they get, but if you want to go into like a private firm and do this type of work, is it easy? Is is it easy to learn how to get in this line of, of business? Oh yeah, I mean, there's so many opportunities in cybersecurity these days. There's such a shortage of skilled workers. There's it's the it's has the lowest rate of unemployment, and it's something that I pr- tell people to pursue. I'm working with a college right now and trying to develop a program that I want to call because what is what do colleges teach? They teach computer science. I want to teach the art of cybersecurity which isn't the quantitative side, it's the qualitative side. It's the side that we need to be able to explain to people. Would you call that, the, hum- to, would you call that the human side? The Absolutely. Being PCI compliant, SOX compliant, any type of compliance is not an adequate cybersecurity strategy. 
It is a compliance check the box. Hey, I get 10% off my car insurance strategy. We cannot start with that. And it's just taking what I've done and I'm building out a framework that I want to be able to develop for small businesses and nonprofit organizations for where to start. Because as I said in the beginning, my goal is to prevent cybercrime victimization. And my goal is to take and find the simplicity that exists in all this complicated world, boil down the record, boil down that information and be able to take what I've learned with my decades with the FBI to teach organizations how not to become the next victim. Let's take a firm who has maybe 10. Again, I, now I don't work with big businesses. My largest company, not quite a hundred million. So we do have a couple of businesses where I work with, they have maybe up to nine, 10 people in their IT department. So who, who would be the person who could be kind of the, the, the cyber person, uh, is it, does it need to be someone on the outside or can it be someone on the inside? And does it need to be full time? Well, and, that, and here's the thing, who owns the data within the organization? Because remember, the IT guy moves the data, is responsible for the data. I always go, who owns the data? Good, good point. Who owns the money within the organization? So that's why for me, I personally think that it's getting CFOs into better leadership positions, not for them to go out and get a PhD in cybersecurity, but to be aware of these threats, to be able to take ownership, to be able to say that if I can empower them with this information and reduce their risk by 90%, then the IT folks can do what the IT folks are doing. And if you don't want to put down too far, and if you work for a company and you think it's too complicated, I always say in these companies that the business owners should sign a document saying that they own and accept the risk. And you want to know why I tell them to do that? So when it hits the fan, we know who to fire first. Uh, and by the way, I'm nodding. Um, <laughs> hey, this is CFO Bookshelf. Uh, I want to ask you, what are some of your favorite books? Now, we do have a lot of finance-related people on, so we do get a lot of business books. You being a, a former FBI agent, it's going to be intriguing. So am I allowed to ask you uh, some of your Oh, favorite? absolutely. I've had a I've had a couple of great books that okay. I've read. So you can answer that way this book this question in two different ways. Either A, what are some of your favorite books that have influenced you the most or what do you like the most or both? But, but go ahead, Scott. I am going to probably say it and I'm going to give you a couple of things, but there are a couple of key points. Because people always say to me, hey, Scott, I want to do what you do. I want to be a professional speaker. You have it all organized. And I'm like, yeah, if you want to be a professional speaker, find a topic that you're passionate about and do a thousand presentations for free. Then you'll do it. Sounds, sounds like you've done that, haven't you? Yeah, well, I have in my career. But there's a couple of things that I would say that have really influenced me in my life. I think, you know, it was probably 1991. I read Anthony Robbins' Awaken the Giant Inside. Okay. Which was so, you know, working on your goals and being passionate. And I thought, I, I thought it didn't work until after 30 years, I realized that I have incorporated so much into my life. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The one bullet point out of that was I spent a majority of my time building relationships with people and really staying, trying to stay away from the urgent and important by going for the non-urgent and important. The other book that really Daniel Pink, and yes, I think we talked about we him. both love Daniel Pink. Oh, there were a couple of things about him with telling stories and using empathy. And that has made such a tremendous impact on my life. Bob Berg's The Go-Giver. Yes. More than anyone could expect, you know, put other people in front of you and there was one other one that I talked about, and I think it was a great podcast. And I, I'm trying to give credit to the person. I mean, I listened to Tom Singer, uh, the everything that cool things that entrepreneurs do. I was on his podcast, and it was almost if you put your passion in front of your profit, the money will come. And those have been the things that I think that I could really say 
that have influenced my life so much that I almost want to build a framework because it took me 25 years to get to this point where I was able to find what I think I'm good at, which is public speaking, what I love to do, which is teaching, what the world needs, which is preventing cybercrime victimization, and figuring out how to make a living doing those four things. Oh, it's that gonna, to me, it's going to happen. I, I'm there. I mean, that's why oh. I'm so blessed. That's why I am so absolutely blessed. And over del- having passion and over delivering. That's what I do. I need you ask the. I need to ask the nerdy, geeky question. One of my. I love narrative journalism. I, I tend to um, just hover toward. I love those books. One of the uh, books early on that's kind of in your th- this territory is uh, Kevin Mitnick's book uh, "Ghosts in the Wires." Does, does does that title ring a bell? Yeah, you know it's funny. I don't read those books. I, I just you know what I've just read a couple of these things. There were a couple of cybersecurity books. I'm going to be honest. I never read any of his books. I was going to say some of them are boring, but that was one of the first ones. I, and that's, and by, it was his book. It may be one of the reasons we're talking because that got that book I read years ago and it started getting this topic in the forefront of my mind. And it's like, Oh, this is scary. I'd never heard of the term social engineering before. And so now with cyber crime, cybersecurity, uh, you know, it, it's, we're hearing that it's in the news, the headlines, and so because of him, it's just made me think about this topic and I want to do everything I can to be able to point people to people like you and read this book, read this book. Oh. So well, one of the things I'd love to be able to do, you know, as, as I like to plug my book, I always tell people, if you're looking to read a book by an FBI agent who saved the day and put a lot of bad guys in jail, not my book. You know, my book is a compilation of stories of almost a thousand victimizations and boiling them down. And I always say that, you know, you should buy my book just for two chapters. One is keeping your kids safe and the other is keeping your parents safe. Mm-hmm. But since I live such a passion project life, I swore I'd never make money doing those two things. So what I'd like to do is any of your listeners who reach out to me over email I'm going to send them the digital copies of those chapters because I want them to keep their kids safe and to keep their parents safe. That sounds great. By the way, if a small business, big business, if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Is that through your website? Uh, the best way, I, I, I'm usually always on LinkedIn. Right, which is how we, all, we connect. Yeah, that no, way. no, I, I am always on LinkedIn. I, I love that platform. I'm providing tons of content about the about different issues that come up. Or you can just shoot me an email at sogenbaum at gmail. And for any of your listeners who hear this today, I'm going to send them those two chapters of the book and a really good document that they can find online that I used many years ago from the FBI. It's on ransomware prevention. And it's from 2015 and also a great document from the business email compromise. The sad part about this is we're still talking about the issues we've been talking about forever. And someone once came to me and said, Scott, do you have to freshen up your presentation? And I go like this, haven't had to freshen it up since 2007. We're still talking about the same issues. And of course, and I really oh, go hope ahead. my passion came across on this. Oh, absolutely. I've been taking notes as well. This has been great. And we'll have all of this in the show notes as well. So Scott, again, this is great. I have a feeling we might be talking again in the uh, future. So again, I, I'm very thankful that you could come on on short notice as well. My pleasure. I've just had a blast today. This is honestly, the more people that I get in front of and might provide my content with is makes me, that makes me successful. I want to get my message out to the masses. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to your hosts, the no-name CFOs, Mark and Bruce. Bruce, I'm curious. Does your company 
have cyber insurance of any kind? Yes. And do you think it's that helpful? Do you really think that cyber insurance will protect you if you lose, let's say you're asked to wire, let's say your controller's asked to wire $5 million because he thought it came from the owner it gets wired to somewhere in Russia that then goes somewhere else. Will cyber insurance refund that? I think that's going to depend on your coverage and also depend on the circumstances behind the loss. More than likely, it will not. Bruce, I generally work with businesses under you know $15 million in revenue. And do you think they have the resources and the money to address cybersecurity? Well, I... I think addressing cybersecurity, there's, you know, that, that, that's a wide, that's a wide topic. And there's, I think it's, again, I think you've, you've got the money, more likely to have the money to address cybersecurity than you are to have the money to address a cyber incident. Okay. Now that's an unfair answer. Uh, You sound like Scott. The answer is Uh yes, but they, yeah, I could have rephrased that question because I, I have a couple of clients that I work with where, where we have IT teams, uh, seven, eight people, because we, we sell digital products. I would say that it's, you're not going to depend on one of those developers or systems analysts or business analysts to be in charge of cybersecurity. You need someone who is the stewardship officer of, you know, addressing cybersecurity issues. I mean, it's kind of like internal controls. You typically have someone outside of accounting who's in charge of internal controls, at least when you get to be bigger. But in smaller businesses, you need that one person who, I'm going to be the czar. I'm going to be the person who helps to prevent uh, any cyber threats that we have in the company. And it may be a checklist of maybe 10, uh, 15 items. And I guess where I was coming from is when I say they don't have the resources, they just don't put thought into it. But when you tell someone, when if you tell someone, Bruce, who's never had this happen to them, more than likely they're not going to implement a checklist until after it's happened. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Because it's, it's an easy thing. It's like a lot of things we talk about on, on the show. It's easy. It's an easy thing to not do. Because it's not right up in it, it's not something that's 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 hot and urgent until there's a problem. So I was looking forward to this topic for several reasons, Bruce. But because you're a chief financial officer, I mean you're a cyber centric. Now your CEO would have a problem with me maybe saying this because no, we're in the people business. But let's just say it takes a lot of cool, amazing uh, technology to make your better mousetrap work. So being a CFO in your organization, what's your biggest tip to other CFOs? What can you say that you're doing that you wish every other CFO would do as well that they may not be doing? Well, I'd say, you know, first and foremost, make sure that your product is safe um, there that you, that you're hosting. um, You know, if you, if you've got, if you've got internally, you know, an internal software that that runs your business, um, you know, make sure that that is 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 safe and secure, and and consider a you know consider one of the larger hosting organizations um, that that is that is going to be one hundred percent up to date on those type of things. And I'd say the second thing would be, and you know, and we can all we can all be better at this, is that the the um, see the, the, the enterprise, the enterprise technology side of things. So everybody's laptop, uh, everybody's, everybody's Microsoft account that you've, you've got the basics covered, whether if you're on a network or not, that you've at least got multi-factor authorization um, in place. There's a few, um, <clears throat> there's a few features within, um, there's a few features within uh, Outlook that you need to to be uh, careful of. IMAP and POP are a couple that Good one. Um, that you know can cause some issues along the way um, there. And then, the, like you were saying, consider having a you know either you know an internally either an internal or external resource dedicated to the things like uh, you know asset control. Ensure you know ensuring that you don't have that that the software that's loaded is is on the right is uh you know is 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 approved 
um, is considered to be safe and mission critical. And, um, and, and the big one is just making sure that you, you know, everything's up to date as far as, um, as far as virus protect and the different, uh, protection and monitoring softwares, you know, getting everybody just to load, to ensure that they load the updates, the windows updates and, and, and antivirus updates, you know, those type of things can go a long way to, um, to preventing some of these troubles down the road. And that's a good idea on the antivirus updates, but even Scott says they're about 30 to 40% effective because by the time they're written, the the yep. the hackers sure. out there are ahead, but it's still another reason keep keep them up to date. Well, you know, and I miss the most important thing, and shame on me, is it's the people and continuing to reinforce yes. with yes. your team, you know, if it looks weird, it might be don't right. click on things that you're not expected, you know, don't um you know, if it, don't answer texts that you don't right. that you that you're not expecting. If you get something from a vendor that you're that's a little out of the ordinary, then call the number on your bill. Those you know those kind of common sense things of you know we've gotten so used to clicking because clicking so many things we do are are achieved with a click that you know sometimes you just got to take a step back and say whoa does this really make sense? And if not pick up the phone and, and, and call your contact as opposed to clicking something. Cause it's once it's once something's launched um, it's, it's very difficult to um, the viral spread, you know, is, you know, is definitely in play in, on this topic as well. Well, great ideas, great tips, uh, Bruce and Scott Augenbaum. You're amazing. You're awesome. And we will have him on uh, in the next year. In fact, I can envision having him on annually, as I know, there's always going to be new stuff coming up in this this uh, this space of cybercrime. So anyway, thank you, Bruce, and we'll talk next week, won't we? Yeah, we will. I'll look forward to it. So until then, stay safe, be well. Everybody out there, practice love and empathy, and we'll talk to you again soon.